Starting a series, and it's going to go for um, the next next six or seven years. It's going to be a long one to settle in. You're not allowed to leave till it's finished either. Um, no, we'll be going for a while. It's a it's a series on um, Sarah and Abraham, which is very exciting. Uh, there's a lot going on in it, so I'm kind of, I guess, covering a few things before we really get started, and. They try and put me first so that whatever I break can just kind of be fixed over the the following weeks. Um, So there will be some curly questions that will come out of this session probably, which is good because we've got Rod next week. Um, He'll be handling and fielding all of those. And so just feel feel free to write down just any question marks, um, any ethical issues you have, and Rod will wrap them up nicely next week should be good, which I won't be here for. Um, super. Um, for those of you who don't know me, there's not much to know, but my name's Shane, and I am part of our Friday night congregation, um, who have already pre-warned me that those of them who have been here, who are here this morning, that um, not, not too many jokes, because they take up too much time. So this is it's my serious face, which I've got on this morning, and we'll be wearing it throughout. Um, I'll tr- and I'll try and stay focused. Um, the story, the series we're about to do is, 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 a, um, is found in the book of Genesis, um, which is the Hebrew book of origins. And uh, it is a complex and exciting and sometimes troubling and deeply disturbing book. Um, some of you in your time reading Genesis uh, will have had wrestles with it, as I have, um, and we may get to some of those wrestles a little bit later on. Um, I'm sure most of you who have read it will have um, been inspired as well. Um, it's The story of Sarah and Abraham is a um, story of an incredible drama. It's rich with epic journeys, defiant bravery, aching emptiness, desperate dreams, cruel betrayal, cunning, cowardice, and ecstatic joy. It's, it's, a, it's a big story, and it's a complex one, and it's a rich one, and there's bits of it, um, of the stories of these people's lives that we can relate to closely and strongly, and there's bits in it that are just so foreign to us, it's really hard to get our head around. Um, it's an important story, but in all the details of the story, it's easy to miss exactly why it's important. I don't know if you've ever tried to just tell a funny little anecdote to someone who's too obsessed with details, um, you know, and, and you get on to talking about, you know, um, putting that T-shirt on and they want to know what colour it is, um, what the density of fabric was, um, whether it had a graphic print on it or not, when you bought it. And in, in all of the detail, it's, it, they just completely miss the actual overarching thrust of the story. They miss, they miss the point. With these small stories... Um, in the Bible. One of the things we have to try and keep in mind is try and work out what the big story is that it's contributing to. Um, One of the main reasons we miss the drama, um, uh, uh, sorry, one of the main reasons we can miss the big story is because when we come to the Bible, we bring ourselves and all of our stuff, and that is good. It is good because we can't get away from ourselves and all of our stuff. But when we come with ourselves and all of our stuff, we also try and look for something in everything that we read and try and get it to deal with 
the stuff that we bring in our world. Um, it's natural that our own, own lives and our own issues and our own culture are at the forefront of our mind. It's, um, we can't really get away from that. Um, but it's especially dangerous when most of us have been taught at some stage or another that the Bible has answers for us. And it does. <laughs> and it can teach us something. But it doesn't always deal, deal in quite the direct fashion that we were hoping for. Um, I'll give you an example of what this could potentially look like. When Steve um, first talked to me about doing a series on Sarah and Abraham, he said, would you like to sort of set a bit of a framework about, about how we can read this story and about some of the story before the story and all these kind of things? I, um, oh, we've got an actual, an actual photograph of, um, of Sarah and Abraham. This is, this is my two-photo two PowerPoint that's coming. Oh, go back one. Just, just back, back. Yeah, back. Yeah, back. Can you, that's all you got. No, can, can, okay. All right. Um, up in the left, top, top left-hand corner, that other one on the right isn't, it's not Abraham. Um, <laughs> the other one's a photograph that was, um, was taken a long time ago. Just, they, you can still see the stars, which is quite good. Um, very early work. I don't, think, um, I don't think Sarah was happy with her profile, but it's all we've got. <laughs> it's not necessarily her good side. Um, this, during the story of Abraham, um, during when Steve was talking to me about the story of Abraham and Sarah and about us studying a series on it, um, I had just seen this picture on the right. And this picture on the right is um, a kid who I haven't actually met yet, but hopefully will soon. And his name's Coldy. Um, and he is, he's one, and he's in a wheelbarrow, and he's, he's pretty darn cute. And I'm planning to go and kidnap him. Um, but don't tell anyone, because that'll ruin, that'll ruin everything. <laughs> make, make it far more difficult if the police are chasing me or are already waiting for me there. Um, I've never met this kid, but he means a heck of a lot to me. Um, he is the son of one of the boys who I used to look at after when I was back home. We... Part of my job um, when I was back home, and actually just something I started doing voluntarily and then ended up being employed to do, was to run a, um, a youth program for um, primarily for 11 and 12 year olds back home. And I'm from New Zealand, just in case you hadn't picked it up. And and uh, we, we basically just had a whole bunch of kids from the community that we looked after. Most of them were just the kids that roamed the streets and happened to be wandering by. And our program was strictly for 11 and 12-year-olds. And so we, um, when we first started it, a bunch of kids rocked up and they were cousins. Um, and, and, and one of the kids, who I'll call Jay, um, he, he, he rocked up with his cousins and we instantly just fell in love with this, with this group of kids. And and they just were there just every single week and then would just hang around until you sent them home, which usually meant sent them back to wandering around the streets. And we, we, um, we didn't really have any idea of how to, how to handle them or exactly what to do, but they were incredibly cute. And we looked after them as best as we can. And it, I actually ended up looking after him for a lot longer because when he first turned up, to the program, um, he of course said he's 11 because that's the age you need to be to get in. Um, then he was 11 for the next four, sort of four or five years. So, you know, by the fourth or fifth year, we worked out something was going on, and he might not have been telling the truth in the first place. And we went just through this really, really long journey with this bunch of kids. I probably had them in my life for sort of 11, 12 years, which is you know long enough to see them go through them, go through some stuff. And they were they were heavily 
they were just a massive part of our lives and no matter what we were doing in life they were kind of present or in and around and um, this particular kid Jay went through some extreme ups and some extreme downs and had a, a lot going on we were um, we tried our best to uh, to love him and care for him and guide him and teach him and more than anything just tried to show him the love of God and uh, in the world that he came from love looked quite different and wasn't always as available from the people that should have been able to love him and so we were there for um, school we were there for him getting kicked out of school we were there for him trying to get him to alternate education we were there for him getting kicked out of alternate education we were there for his court cases we were there I was actually his um, community um, community work supervisor <laughs> um, you know so so it was a it was a long long journey with him and then slowly um, as time went on he grew up and did some great things and did some not so great things and the whole the whole journey the whole way we just tried to just be present and be around and love him as best as we could and one of the things uh, one of the hardest parts about leaving New Zealand for me was the fact that there's all these kids who I've had in my life for a long long time and uh, incredibly significant to me that I've even even if I didn't see them every day or every week, they were still present, and hopefully I was still present for them. And leaving kind of made that relationship a whole lot more difficult, uh, which is fine when you're moving to a new city and things are exciting and things are good. But just before, just as um, I started thinking about what I was going to talk about with this, starting this series, I was on Facebook, and, um, and Jay's um, girlfriend had put this picture here up and I actually didn't even realise he'd had a kid and so seeing his one year old boy Cody who looks just ridiculously like him, it's, it's, it's crazy um, something in me just, just broke and, and I really grieved it and it just brought back how much I really missed that those people and that element of my life and how different my world here is in heaps of ways and how that's really good in some ways and really hard in others. And I guess I got um, some level of anxiety about um, who was caring for my boys and who who was loving them and um, whether they had people around them who could be there for them. Um, Big questions about where God was in their life. An incredible sense of pride about the fact that... um, He's working and is in a steady relationship and is being a good father. And just this kind of like mixed bag of, of stuff. So the issue is, is when I go to bring that to the Bible and read Genesis and read uh, the story of Sarah and Abraham. If I approach the story expecting specific answers to the stuff that's going on inside of me, If I approach a story hoping for a very clear and direct message about what to do next, what action to take, what God is telling me directly about um, how to directly apply this book of life to this specific concrete situation, it becomes a very messy and confusing business. As the passage about a son being promised to Sarah, telling me to expect a visitation from God? Is the bit about a ram being provided for Abraham, telling me I'll find other ways to serve people here? 
is the bit about Hagar telling me to get a housekeeper, is how, how do you take something that was written for a different people a long time ago and make sense of it in this day and age? How do we bring our lives to a story and let that story speak to us? The danger with that approach of um, trying to get the Bible and everything we read in it to specifically fix or teach or guide every single specific concrete scenario in our life is what we begin to do to it is distort the story the Bible is telling to match our needs. We try and massage it into something that it may not be trying to talk directly to, which is not why the story was told. One of the things we need to do in approaching texts like this is let the story speak for itself. And after the story is spoken for itself, then glean from it. The bulk of Genesis is written in a genre called narrative. It's a collection of stories making up a larger story. Um, The narrative in Genesis is a story of a people passed down from generation to generation long before it was ever written. It was passed down um, verbally telling them who they are and where they came from. Genesis is an ancient story from a different time, told and retold by people with a very different view of the world than us. This is the difference between divine inspiration and divine dictation. The Christian uh, belief around the Bible is that it's divinely inspired, not divinely dictated. So our approach to the Bible is not that God wrote it, but that people wrote it, inspired by God. And so within this book, you get this mixture of humanity and divinity. And that in the coming together of those things, we have something that we can look to that tells us the story of God. But that's a very different perspective than God took control of people and wrote exactly what he wanted written. This could perhaps be viewed more as a partnership than puppetry. And so within this, within this story, um, we need to account for the fact that humanity is wrapped up in it and involved in it. We need to realize that the story was first not for us, but for someone else. And it made sense for that someone else. And that someone else's view of the world affects what goes on in here. There are things that are missed out that we, we, we could really do with knowing. Uh, there, are thing, there are details in here that were common knowledge to those people, but are completely foreign to us. This story is a bigger story made up of lots and lots of smaller stories. And if all we see is a little story standalone by itself, we can miss the point of the big story altogether. Um, there's an excellent book which is in my bag, which is all the way back here, and I've forgotten. And I just caught Estelle rifling through my bag. I wasn't even looking. Thanks, Estelle. Um, and it's called... <laughs> I'm just going to... I know what was in there before, so I'm going to check that. <laughs> uh, it, it's well worth a read. It's, re- it's really, really good. Um, it's by one of my favorite scholars, um, Gordon Fee, and this other guy who I, I don't know who he is, um, Douglas Stewart. He's probably not as good as Gordon Fee. Um, not, that, I mean, not that Douglas is a bad name. It's just I don't know. Um, it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and uh, it's a really helpful book telling you about how 
to read the Bible for all it's worth. Uh, brilliant marketing, I have to say. Like the, the, the product, the description, the title really describes the book. It really does, which, you know, I think things like Fifty Shades of Grey or, you know, other, other books don't, don't give you ex- as, as specific enough information as to what's actually in there. Excellent. Um, the, they've got a section on narrative. So, so, so the, the genre of Genesis is this genre called narrative, which is storytelling. Now I'm just going to find the bit I'm looking for. It's way back here. Are you ever surprised at the things that you find as bookmarks? <laughs> Popsicle stick. Um, I end up with all kinds of things. This, this, is, this has got a bit to it, so, so bear with me. The nature of narratives, what narratives are. Narratives are stories, purposeful stories, retelling the historical events of the past that are intended to give meaning and direction for a people in the present. This has always been so for all people in all cultures. And, and in this regard, biblical narratives are no different from other such stories. Nonetheless, there is a crucial difference between the biblical narratives and all others, because inspired by the Holy Spirit as they are, the story they tell is not so much our story as it is God's story, and it becomes ours as he writes it into us. The biblical narratives thus tell the ultimate story, a story that even though, uh, even though often complex, is utterly true and crucially important. Indeed, it is a magnificent story, grander than the grandest epic, richer in plot and more significant in its characters and descriptions than any humanly composed story could ever be. But to appreciate the story, you will need to know some basic things about narratives, what they are and how they work. At their basic level, Bible narratives tell us things about things that happened in the past. All the narratives have three basic parts, characters, plot, and plot resolution. That is, most narratives presuppose some kind of conflict or tension that needs, needs resolving. Have you ever seen a movie where there's nothing happens at all? Nothing? Like nothing, nothing happens? Terrible movie. You know, like a movie about a happy couple that are just happy and that's the end of it? That's, yeah, abysmal. They, they don't, there's not many of them because we can't relate to a story that doesn't need resolving. There's just, there's a, it's not a story. There's just nothing to tell. You could tell it in a statement. It doesn't even, in, even need a story. Um, but all of these narratives have three basic parts, characters, plot, and plot resolution. That is, those narratives presuppose some kind of conflict or tension that needs resolving. In traditional literary terms, the characters are the protagonist, the primary person in the story, the antagonist, the person who brings about the conflict or tension, and sometimes the agonists, the other major characters in the story who get involved in the struggle. In the biblical story, God is the protagonist. Satan or evil people or powers are the antagonists, and God's people are the agonists. The basic plot of the biblical story is that the creator God has created a people for his name in his own image, who as his image bearers were to be his stewards over the earth that he created for their benefit. But an enemy entered the picture who persuaded the people to bear his image instead, and thus to become God's enemies. The plot resolution is a long story of redemption, how God rescues his people from the enemy's clutches, restores them back into his image, and finally will restore them into a new heaven and a new earth. So there's this idea that in approaching the story of Abraham and Sarah, we have to... We can't just rip the story of Abraham and Sarah out of Genesis 
take it apart and put it over here and then study it. We have to understand that the story of Abraham and Sarah is framed in a much larger story. For us as Christians, it's framed in the super story or the meta-narrative of right from Genesis right through to Revelation, covering the entire gamut of the, of, of the canon, that the entire story speaks to us, and the small stories speak in context. So Genesis begins with this beautiful creation poem of God who is good and loving and kind and relational, yet powerful and creative, created a universe which at its centerpiece there was this place called Earth. And at the centerpiece of all of that creation, he placed a being that he loved and put his mark on, humankind, and that his intention for them was good and peaceful and whole, and he gave them a commission to take the earth, to look after it and care for it, to fill it with their own kind, and to live in relationship with a relational God. And then it sort of tracks the fall, the fall away from God, the rebellion and the crisis, the pain and suffering that ensued. But then it tracks this beginning story, the fact that God, rather than destroying the lot, actually put himself into the story. And you'll find that throughout the Bible, this is the story that the Bible is telling of God putting himself into the story over and over and over again, that he doesn't give up, but that he persists because he loves us. And it's taking us on this long arc of redemption, moving towards the end days where God redeems all things, where God restores us on a new heavens and new earth. And, and that the story of God is a story of a loving God who just continues to love and continues to love and continues to love and doesn't give up on humanity. And so what um, Fee and Stewart would call that, they'd call it the meta-narrative, or they'd call it, call it the third-level narrative. And so the third-level narrative or the meta-narrative is the narrative that um, goes across the whole, it's, it's the whole Bible. It's the whole story. It's the whole story of God and human history. And every, all the smaller components in the Bible are there to contribute to and to tell the story of the entire arc of, from creation right through to the end of redemption. Then they talk about the second level, which are the, um, the bigger narratives. And this, the second level are the large narratives, such as um, the church would be one of the, the main, one of the major narratives. The um, the creation of Israel, God starting, uh, setting a people aside for Himself to create a people that represented Him, the the kickstart of the, the redemption plan. And then these kind of these um, first level narratives, which are all the little stories, big and small, that make up those second narratives that make up the big narrative. And so through this complex weaving of stories and teachings and all these things, we can look into and we can capture the scope of the, of the big story, the meta-narrative, that God um, is the creator and sustainer of all life, that we fell away from him, but that God, through a whole heap of quite natural and very supernatural acts, is bringing all things together to redeem and restore creation, and that the end is good. It is very good. So... When we, approach, um, when we approach a narrative like Abraham and Sarah, what, rather than just going straight to application, we just need to be holding intention and keeping, um, keeping an eye on what's going on in the big story. What part does this have to play? Um, you can do some unhelpful things with narrative. And there's a, quite a big list that, that they take you through in, um, 
in this book. But I'll just read you a, a couple of potential abuses of narratives or some final cautions. Uh, one of them is moralizing. This is the assumption that principles for living can be derived from all passages. The moralizing reader, in effect, asks the question, what is the moral of the story at the end of every individual narrative? An example would be, what can we learn about handling adversity from how the Israelites endured endured their um, their years as slaves in Egypt? The fallacy of this approach is that it ignores the fact that the narratives were written to show the progress of God's history of redemption, not to illustrate principles. They are historically, they are historical narratives, not illustrative narratives. So what that's saying is, even though you can glean moral lessons from the stories that we read, they weren't written for that purpose. They were written to record what happened, and so we primarily need to teach, need to read them in that light. Personalizing, also known as individualizing. This refers to reading scripture in the way suggested above, supposing that any or all parts apply to you or your group in a way that they need not apply, or sorry, that do not apply to everyone else. This, in fact, this is in fact a self-centered reading of the Bible. Examples of personalizing would be, the story of Balaam's talking donkey reminds me that I talk too much. <laughs> or the story of the building of God's temple is a way of God telling us that we have to construct a new church building. Now, There may be a prophetic element in there that God may be trying to highlight something to you in the things that you read. But we just need to be really careful that we don't try and take every small passage that we read and get something special from it that doesn't apply to everyone. That's essentially reading from the bottom up. That's really saying that the purpose of this is to speak to me rather than to help to tell the whole story. So it's not that we can't get things out of stuff, but we just need to temper that urge um, and our pressing needs so that we can actually sit back and embrace the whole scope of the big story. Um, The last one's misappropriation. Uh, This is closely related to personalizing. It is to appropriate the text for purposes that are quite foreign to the biblical narrative. This is what happens when, on the basis of Judges 6, verse 36 to 40, people fleece God as a way of finding God's will. This, of course, is, a myth, is both a misappropriation and decontextualizing, since the narrator is pointing out that God saved Israel through Gideon despite his lack of trust. And so if we read the story of Gideon and go, man, Gideon tested God in this way, and then go, man, what that's trying to tell me is that I need to put sheepskins out at night about everything. What that's kind of doing is missing, A, the thrust of the story, but it's also missing the thrust of the whole narrative. That God uses us despite us not trusting him sometimes. It's not an instructional manual on how to, get, how to find out God's will. You see the subtle difference between those two things? Yeah. And so, and so those are three ways that narrative can be misused. But there are a lot of good ways to use and read narrative. Um, this, this becomes especially important when dealing with a massive cultural gap between the ancient world when these stories were lived and the world we live in now. For some of you, reading the Old Testament is the source of life and inspiration and hope, and every time you go to it, it brings you alive and fills you with joy. For others of you, the very mention of a series 
on an Old Testament narrative fills you with anxiety and angst and worry and concern and may cause um, stomach upsets and near nervous breakdowns. I would probably... I'm in both camps. (laughs) I'm in both camps. But I can certainly understand how troubling some of the Old Testament narrative can be. If we don't take the whole story and the fullness of its scope and glory and let that speak to the Christian story, we risk taking small portions from a very different people at a different time and creating complex ethical applications. Um, And I think we've got to be very careful doing that. To me, the Bible is an ark of redemption. And if we don't recognize the shift in trajectory um, between the Old Testament and Christ and perhaps even the New Testament and now, we'll end up with an ethical outlook that's in extremely jumbled, very concerning, and in my opinion, potentially quite dangerous. If we take, if we take the um, ethical approach to how women are treated in the Old Testament without bringing that story through Christ, I think we end up in a very, very dangerous place. If we don't apply the Christian ethic um, of how to approach enemies through the ethic taught to us and redeemed by Christ, I think we end up taking a lot of eyes out and potentially committing genocide. We need the whole story. We need the whole story. And this story is full of beauty and life and goodness, and through all of its humanity, I believe God shines through. But to just have a cut and dried approach of every little piece is trying to teach me something about how to apply this to my situation. I I just don't think does honor to the text. And some of you may be quite upset at me now for my approach to the Old Testament. Some of you might be relieved that someone else sees or struggles with some of the things that you struggle with. But what I hope throughout this little session we get to is the fact that this story does speak to our story and it speaks to it really strongly, just maybe not in the way that we always want. So getting to my story of Jay and Kauri and um, the sense of loss, the sense of anxiety, my concern for people that I love, my struggle to um, to re-find and reshape my identity in a new place, in a new life. How does this story speak to my story? Well, when we let this story speak for itself, it talks of a God of involvement, of redemption, of kindness, a God who um, hugely cares about community and redeems through bringing people together. It talks about a God who celebrates life, a God who hears the concerns of small people, a God who especially cares for the marginalized, a God who um, set in process through a group of people acts of redemption. 
in this story is not going to give me a bullet point answer to my situation, but I can recognize God's initiative of redemption through community and the power of relationship to bring change. I can see a God who cares and grieves with me as I experience loss. I can celebrate small acts of redemption that we experienced in the time that we had together. I can imitate a God who lays himself down for the restoration of others. I can rest knowing that God loves Jay and Cody and all my other boys even more than I do. I can petition a loving God to do what I can't do and find a way to be present in their lives. I can celebrate the fact that God is on a mission and I can celebrate the church that there are, the, the fact that there is a church on a mission all over the world seeking to bring the love of God and healing and hope and restoration to broken people. And so even though that doesn't give me a bullet point answer, this bigger story speaks to this situation powerfully if I let it speak to itself first. Sorry, speak for itself first. We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. Um, Communion's a part of this big story of God's action in sending his son to bring wholeness and hope to a world that's struggling and broken and lost, to celebrate life and the resurrection in a whole new way, to um, initiate or, or continue the plan he kick-started with Abraham and Sarah to set up people aside for himself to represent him, to be embraced, to be wrapped up in the community of God. I'm not promising I'm necessarily going to go down every um, angle that might come up here, but are there any questions or comments or... I may need Steve to help me with this one. <laughs> I may just fuck it to Rod next week. But is there anything, is there anything um, inspiring or perhaps troubling or follow-up questions to that um, little session? Or response? Excellent. You love filling in gaps. <laughs> Great. Right. Excellent. Oh, great. <laughs> Excellent. That sounds like I'd like, love to meet him. <laughs> Just for people who didn't hear the question, because they probably should get the microphone. I'm not very good at this. But um, but how do you so how do you approach a, a singular text if you don't feel like you know the narrative of the Bible, or, or have the tools that you need to work out where it fits and all those kind of things? Um, really good question. It's th- this is where I think church community comes comes into play, in that we are all a, a learning and growing 
community. I, I think that in community, there's a degree of safety because as we discuss, um, as we temper each other, as we bring our, our knowledge together um, and we bring our revelation and our learning and our relationship together, um, we've got the opportunity to develop maturity over time. And, I, and I'd say that the grand narrative, to some extent, it, it, it is, it, and even reading the Bible, is an, it, it's, a, it's an act of, ma- of maturity that we need to slowly learn and slowly grow into. So what we develop over the years, hopefully what we develop over the years, is a framework to operate from. So we, as we learn and keep in mind the big story. So even, you know, I, I, a couple of times within there summed up a very shoddy, cobbled-together version of the big story of creation, crisis, redemption, um, which you can learn that idea pretty quickly. You can begin to take those ideas and look for them in, in, in this story here. So specifically, how do you do it every time you come to the Bible? Um, it's a complicated question, but my encouragement would be to, A, keep learning the big story, and then keep asking questions and keep discussing how the smaller ones fit into. And that's where I think relationship and community is really, really important. Um, there are, you know, if we're going to read well, just like in anything, sometimes we need to do work as well. There are some really good books or some really good teaching courses, some really good resources that can help, um, you know, so for some, for some people here, it's the first time they would have thought about Genesis as a narrative as opposed to a technical manual or a poem or something else, and that might be a new concept. You can learn, a, you can learn about narrative. Like these ideas that might be new are only new now, but they need not be new for a long time. You can, um, you can, you can, there's really good books or really good you know, sermons or all kinds of things about how to understand genre and how to use it use it well. It's a, it's, a, it's a learning journey, which is where, to be honest, I think sometimes, and I can't speak for any of your histories, but within my... I'm, 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 I'm from a Pentecostal tradition, so um, Pentecostal and theology haven't always gone well together. So one of the things we haven't done particularly well in my tradition is actually taught people how to read the Bible well. Um, what we've usually gone is gone. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you said a prayer. Here's a Bible. Man, it's going to change your life. <laughs> He did what? <laughs> and, and these 13-year-old kids are expected to go home and read an ancient text and have been told that God will definitely speak to them. And through the grace of God, often he does. But there are better, I, th- I think there's more whole approaches um, to reading the Bible than that. And I think sometimes they take learning and equipping and skilling and, and, and a community of people who are committed to doing that to, to, to reading well. Does that help enough? Yeah. So there's no, what I'm saying is there's no really short-term answer. But I think if I was to give one short-term answer, that would be take that little, grant, that, that, that little description of the meta-narrative, hold that in your mind as you read the Bible and go, man, what's God up to here? Where does this fit in his plan of redemption? What's he trying to do? Abraham and Sarah is an excellent example of him gathering a people that God actually redeems through community. I think it's one of the big things that we can learn and has a good application for us, that God redeems through community. Is that helpful? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's different translations that lend itself to that as well. Yeah, the message has got um, a, a very easy approach.
Yeah. It was describing what was happening rather than telling you what to do. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, good. Not always. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. 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 That's really, that's a really good little test. Yeah. I like, I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I, I guess one of the things I'm throwing back on you, <laughs> one, of the things, one of the other things my tradition has done really well um, is, um, is, is, is taught that whatever the person with the microphone has to say is the Bible and the truth, um, and all you need to do is write it down, even if it contradicts the thing that you wrote down last week. Um, <laughs> it's a new, new truth, um, <laughs> which is great because it takes a lot of pressure off you guys to have to actually process stuff, um, you know, which, you know, cushy job. You know, it's like, here, yeah, I'll give you a job and I'll do it for you as well. Brilliant, <laughs> as long as, you know, you pay me well. Um, and I get a white suit. Um, but what I'm pushing back to you is saying that even what I'm talking about today, you've got a responsibility because you have a brain. You have a responsibility to filter, to process, and to think. Um, and sometimes that can be troubling. Sometimes that can be hard work. And sometimes that can be deeply traumatic. And often it can be really life-giving and inspiring. And often it's a community exercise as well that you need to actually discuss and talk over. But what my hope is that through the way that we communicate, um, that you will actually process and mull over and chew over and, 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 and wrestle with. Yeah. We've probably gone, like, way long enough. Lauren's yawning at me, um, which is always the sign. Um, I don't want to get a growling later. Please don't let me get a growling later. Um, cool. We, we're gonna t- we've got, you've got communion on your table. Um, we'll, you've got some juice and some crackers. Why don't you just um, distribute that about? I've got lonely communion. <laughs> I've got communion of one. It's like a date of one. Awesome. Let's um take this. Does it? Do you feel like praying? Do you mind? I know you're only on one and a half hours sleep. You don't know what's going to come out, but that'd be awesome. I've talked too much. Father, as we um, unpack um, the story of Abraham and Sarah, we, we are so grateful that you've taken the initiative to come and rescue us in a world that's um, rebelled against you and... These elements speak to us of your love and your concern, your commitment to put all things right and to put us right within ourselves, with you and with one another. And uh, we're so grateful that, Lord, we are able to eat and drink and fellowship 
with you. And as we do so, we do so in expectation that your life and love would be poured upon us in a fresh way. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Let's sit and drink together. We're a really interesting, um, interesting community because um, I guess uh, the way that we're seeking to do church is um, perhaps a little bit, certainly a lot different to how I've engaged in church life in days gone by. Uh, to be in an environment where you can actually challenge and question um, the speaker, uh, to have that opportunity, whether you kind of feel comfortable with that or not, at least there is a, the option to do that is in my view, uh, refreshing and healthy and a really mature approach. Um, That as a community, we actually are open to a scope of opinions and beliefs, provided that there is this sense that we're connected to the same story, the one big narrative uh, but within that, there are, there are shades. There are 50 shades of grey, perhaps. <laughs> and um, that's okay. And that that's takes maturity to actually, as a community, to live in that place, to fellowship and, um, and, 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 and do life together with those that, who have slightly uh, different opinions to us. But we're bound by something greater than just having agreement around beliefs, but we are bound by a commitment to love and respect, which is, if to me, is the overarching kind of big thing, rather than just agreeing on the nuances of, um, of Scripture. I thought what uh, Shane did this morning was absolutely outstanding. Um, and as he was talking, what I... Uh, I guess I kind of think in pictures. I I, I saw like the jigsaw uh, puzzle, the the box. You know, if if you've got the big picture and you've got the jigsaw puzzle box there in front of you, you know kind of you've got all these kind of pieces and uh, without that photo on the front, you're kind of lost. And there are these things that quite don't make sense. But while you've got that big picture before you, um, at least that little puzzle there, you know it fits into the story somehow. You might not sh- be sure exactly where it goes, but you know that it has a place. And as Shane was talking, I guess that was the thing uh, I felt Shane was doing, was saying, hey, there is a big picture here. And as we unpack the story of Abraham, there are some things there um, that... For example, I know there are some people here um, or part of our community who the very idea of um, some of the things, the events that occur in the Abraham-Sarah story, for them, as believers, makes it very difficult for them to uh, walk with God. 
Now, for some of us who have a different type of faith, we kind of think, well, that's kind of, that's really not very healthy, but that's where they're at. And, and I feel like um, it's really important that we have, as we go on this journey over the next number of months and look at this story, that we have a strong sense of the story of God, the big story of God. What Shane alluded to is the story of God it fits into a framework of creation, sin or crises, and God's redemption. Um, that's the traditional evangelical approach to the matter narrative. God created the world, humanity sinned, and God set about the task of redeeming humanity and putting us right with himself. Um, the Eastern Church um, frame the Scripture uh, in a different way, and that is God created the world, um, creation, and the next phase is incarnation and re- recreation, and we can maybe unpack that later. The thing that I'm working through is an alternate to both of those things, and that is the big idea of God or the meta narrative is actually anchored in one single word, and it's the word family. That's kind of where I'm probably leaning as to, un- under- to understand the grand narrative. But whatever framework we take, we have to have a big picture. Because without that, um, and I think many of us have been around long enough to know that um, so many folks have got lost in, in um, the small pieces of the puzzle because they haven't seen the grand picture that God is wanting to communicate to us. So thanks, thanks Shane. Um, really outstanding. Um, and uh, Rod, next week is going to... Um, I'm not quite sure. I can't quite remember what he was going to do. Uh, actually, he was going to give us a snapshot of the culture in which Abraham lived, the kind of world that Abraham and Sarah lived in, so that we kind of get a bit of a feel for uh, what it was like in that time and place. And then after that, I'm going to do what I think is probably will be the most uh, important message that we'll ever hear based on on Blood Covenant um, from that story, which is very, very exciting.